Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. What does the word disruptive mean to you? It means going beyond the ordinary, going beyond the status quo. Not thinking in the conventional way, not just sort of following the herd. Disruptive means shaking things up, you know? Disruptive entrepreneur is somebody who sees the problem and embraces the problem mm. with a new way. Shake up and awakening. Quality will take care of itself and you'll go from being disruptive but also profitable. When you use your own reservoir of talent, when you love what you do, then you disrupt. Mix it up, change it up and dominate. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. Hi, it's Rob Moore here and welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. The interview you are about to hear is with Ed Milet. So he's an American entrepreneur. I think he definitely fits the disruptive theme. He's ranked in the top 50th wealthiest people under 50 in the USA. He has a reputed net worth of over 400 million US dollars. He's a business leader, a peak performance expert. He's the author of Max Out Your Life. He's a podcast. He has the Ed Milet Show. And now, one of the things about doing the interviews is I much rather do them face-to-face because I feel like we get better rapport, connection. You know, there's not that slight delay going over to the US. But this was quite a rare one where we did Skype. And I think you'll notice we seem to get on really well. And um, I don't want to ruin the surprise, but I think there are some things in this podcast episode that are going to surprise you greatly. And there's quite a few things that Ed talks about in this podcast that he's never talked about before. You'll hear him quite frequently say, wow, Rob, I've not been asked that question before. He had some quite shocking news just before he came on and total respect for him for still doing the show and not putting it off or delaying it like you know uh, many big celebrities do from time to time so i think you'll really enjoy this so remember if you don't risk anything you risk everything let's go straight in with the podcast interview with ed milet hi it's rob moore here and welcome to the disruptive entrepreneur podcast i am honored privileged excited uh, to have with me uh, a man who's done a hell of a lot of things in a very short period of time in his life uh, now, just to set the scene, I've got a really good friend in Peterborough who's making waves too. His name is Matt Januzek, and um, he has a brilliant um, fitness company called Escape. They're a global business. And um, he was raving about an interview with a chap that he did. And he said, Rob, you've got to get this guy on your show. He's fantastic. Uh, and that is Ed Myler. And I feel really privileged that Ed is now here live uh, for this podcast. So, Ed, thanks for giving us your time today. Very grateful. Great to be here. And please give my best to Matt too. I enjoyed that conversation. I will do. Um, so I'm trying to work out what you don't do. Normally when I interview guests, I've got to work out kind of their speciality and what they do do. You're a bit different because you made a load of money. You've got a massive staff. Uh, you're a, a big social media influencer, big in speaking and personal development and growth. Um, so what would you say you do, Ed? And, and if you could say you have a speciality, what would that be? That's a great question. I've never been asked that. Is that incredible? Out of a million interviews. I would say that what I'm uh, probably best at doing is helping people become the best version of themselves, the maxed out version <laughs> of themselves, whether that be an entrepreneur, a mom, a pastor, uh, a professional athlete, a politician, an entertainer. I, I help them. Uh, pull out of them both the inspiration and the best strategies to max out their performance. And so I've, I've been doing that now for about 25, almost 30 years now in business and in sports and all these other areas. So mm. uh, so if you could say what you think the main elements of helping someone become the best they can be, what would they be? Well, I think the thing that holds most people back is their identity. And so I'm pretty good at getting people to change their identity. In other words, your identity is the thoughts, concepts, beliefs, values that you hold to be true about yourself. And your life is going to be very consistent with that. Your identity is, for the most part, in the room right next to me, I, I can see it, but you can't. There's a thermostat sitting on the wall in there. That thermostat regulates the temperature of the room. It's set at 75 degrees. So right now I opened up the doors. It's a cold, rainy day here. I live right on the ocean. A bunch of cold air is blowing in here right now, but the room's not going to cool down to the external conditions. The room's going to heat back up to 75 degrees because that thermostat will heat the room up to get it to the temperature it's set at. It's identity. If I open that door and hot air blew in here, which probably is now that I'm starting to talk, <laughs> the air conditioner will turn on and cool that room back to 75 degrees. It regulates the temperature. Your identity regulates the temperature of your life. No matter what happens, the external conditions can get better and better and better. You're making more money or you're more fit or you're in a better relationship. 
But if you don't change your identity, it's, if you're a 75 degreeer and you're getting 85, 90, 95 degrees of results, you'll find a way over a pretty short period of time to turn the air conditioner back down and get those areas right back to what your identity is. And that's why you'll see people get ahead and then come back, lose weight and gain it, get in a great relationship and lose it, make a bunch of money and get back. The reverse is also true. You know, you gain more weight than you're used to gaining or your finances are worse than they've ever been. You find a way to heat it back up. You've never starved to death. You get your temperature. And so you can change all the external conditions of your life. You can focus on all those other things. But if you don't turn, change the internal thermostat of your happiness, your faith, your finances, your health, your wealth, all of these other things, you're going to get your identity every single time. And so I teach both the strategies externally how to change it, but probably the most important thing is you get that identity to change. Like with an athlete, they'll come up for air here. You see athletes all the time are incredible performers, but in crunch time, they keep missing the shot. They keep getting knocked out. They miss the putt, whatever it might be. That's their identity rearing its head every single time. So I get them to change their identity where they believe they're worthy and deserve to make that putt, to hit that shot in the crunch time. And so that's probably the number one thing that I think I'm pretty darn good at doing. And how does one change their identity so that in those crux moments, they're a winner? Yeah, and you can do, and by the way, it's not just in clutch moments. It's just, there's people listening to this right now or watching this who they've already experienced this thousands of times times in their life. They got in really good shape. Now they're kind of back where they used to be. They've made a little bit of money. It's back. They found their dream relationship. Now it's over. And you think all this stuff is unrelated. It's just circumstantial. Well, my car broke down, so I had to pay a bill. That's why I have no more money. No, it's not coincidental. Nothing is coincidental. And so the quick, the two quickest ways to change it, and you hear this all the time, but you don't understand why, the power of association. So if, if I'm a, and I'm a product of this, when I was in my late 20s, early 30s, I started to surround myself, thank God, with some incredibly successful business people that were living at 150 degrees. And I was a 75 degreeer. Through that proximity, over time, proximity is power. They heat you up somewhere in between where they are and where you are. So those guys got me to about 100, 125 degrees. So association alters identity by proximity. Also, the closer someone is to you, the more they can influence you. So like with our kids, we think, you know, their school teachers are like their mentors. People think, I got to get a mentor. And you do. Hopefully, I'd be one for someone online or my podcast or my teachings, YouTube, whatever. And mentors have influence over you. But if you have children, any parent will tell you the thing they're not concerned about is who their teacher is. They're concerned about who their friends are. Because their friends are in closer proximity. They have greater influence. So if you can turn your mentors into friends, they can really heat you up. So that's number one. And then number two, is it a crazy psycho amount of activity in a very short window of time? You do a whole bunch of stuff you've never done before in a short window. You shock your system and your identity into believing you're no longer at that temperature anymore. It's like a heat wave. It's like a, it's like a bam. All of a sudden, you're not at 75. You're at 86 because you change. It's almost like a new watermark in a pool or in the ocean. It's just It's higher, and it doesn't go back down again when you do a short amount of activity in a tiny window of time. Okay, thanks, Ed. So um, people use this phrase a lot in England. I'm not so sure in America, but I reckon you know some stuff about it. And it's self-sabotage. Um, so you were talking about, you know, you get a level of success, you go back down to your, your thermostat temperature. Um, people who seem to continually kind of get in their own way, self-destruct, self-sabotage, how do you kind of help those people? How do you stop people doing that? Well, you're right. That's exactly what happens when our results exceed our identity. You're going to find a way to get your identity. Yeah. And so the truth is, this is the hardest thing in life to accept. Then I'll give you a strategy. The hardest thing in life to accept, this is difficult, even for me. I have some things going on right now that are wonderful. But I just left a meeting with somebody who's close to me who's got a health issue. And uh, really difficult to see happen. But you're getting out of life what you believe you deserve. And, and you really are getting out of life what you think you deserve. In other words, it is in your control. You and God. So I'm a person of faith. So it's, there's only two people in control of all this stuff. And so the way that you alter your life and get out of your own way is that you begin to build self-confidence in addition to your identity. Self-confidence is self-trust. Most people do not have self-confidence. The truth is, if you peeled it back, you looked, took away their BS, you took their social media away, and you, you looked them in the eye, they don't really trust themselves. 
And the reason they don't trust themselves is they built a habit of not keeping the promises they make to themselves. So the way you begin to build self-confidence is not difficult. It's the process of stacking promises that you make to yourself over and over. So even with my athletes, when I'm working with them, I will get them to link their work ethic, their work schedule to keeping a promise they've made. And all of a sudden, over time, for a normal person, it's getting up and, and doing your morning routine the way you say you're going to. Give yourself credit. You've kept a promise you made yourself. Getting to the gym when you say you're going to. Eating a certain way. In your business, a certain amount of contacts you make. The parts that you begin to keep control, you keep the promises you make to yourself, you begin to stack this self-confidence where it's so deep that you can trust you, you stop sabotaging yourself. And so the self-sabotage is a lack of self-confidence, okay? And that is because you do not keep the promises you make to you. I'm not very good at a lot of things, brother. Honestly, I, I think one of the reasons people seek me out in personal development or self-help or whatever you want to call it is because I'm pretty vulnerable with the fact that I, I'm the way I am because I came from such a place of lack. I'm so, I was so insecure, so shy, so introverted as a young person. I had to build these skills and these techniques just to function as a person. But what came out of it was I'm really good when I say I'm going to do something to me, not to another person. When I say it to me, I do it. I trust me. And, man, that's where confidence comes from. And so I have eliminated, for the most part, sabotage by raising my identity and building my self-confidence. And how did you go from lacking in confidence, lacking in finances, to where you are now? So maybe it'd be great to hear you share your journey a little bit. My journey was interesting. I was an athlete. I was a baseball player here in the United States. I was a good one. I suffered an injury. Like all athletes, my career ended on an injury, right? It wasn't that I wasn't good enough. Um, but frankly, my injury probably prematurely ended a career that would have ended anyway. But when that career ended, I became unemployed. And I have this belief that people say, but I started saying it 20 years ago, that everything in your life happens for you and not to you. And so I grew up in an alcoholic family. My dad was an alcoholic. He's now sober. He's been my best friend for 30 years now. But I grew up in one of those families where there's a lot of anxiety, a lot of stress. Just people that have any drug addiction or abuse or alcoholism in their family or divorce. We all come from something, right? Mine was alcoholism. Long story made short, my dad just got sober. I was unemployed. I was 21. I had moved back to my parents' house. Same bed I grew up in. Same teddy bear. Same posters on the wall. Losing in life big time. My dad came home from an AA meeting, one of his first ones. He goes, you get your ass up tomorrow morning. You got a job at 6 a.m. at McKinley Home for Boys. So what the hell is that? He goes, I don't know, but they're going to pay you, so show up. My guy, Tim, at the AA meeting says he got you a job. Sure enough, I show up the next morning. I'm Eddie Milet. I'm here for the job. They're like, what job? I said, I have no idea. I don't even know what you guys do. They're like, well, um, you have to come back because – we have no idea who you are. And what McKinley was, was an orphanage. It's a group home for boys. My boys were all molested by family or their parents were dead or in prison. And uh, I'm at the door, I'm about to leave. And I go, well, I, a guy named Tim told me I get to the job. They go, we don't, there's like eight Tims here. And they go, well, um, I go, well, I know he's an alcoholic because he was in an AA meeting with my dad. They go, oh, drunk Tim, that's cottage eight. So I go to Cottage 8, I walk in, there are 10 boys in there, they're all 8 to 10 years old, and uh, these boys just stopped when I walked in. They're getting ready for school. And these boys all have the same eyes I have. Any child that comes from any abuse or dysfunction, our eyes are different. We just want somebody to love us, believe in us, care about us, and teach us how to live better. And I instantly fell in love. I went from being an ego-driven athlete to, oh my God, I love serving people. So I was with these boys on Christmas when they got home from school. I was their dad, their brother, and I fell in love with it. And that started my business journey, believe it or not, even though I hadn't found the business, the first business, I fell in love with loving people, caring about them, believing them, and helping them live better. And to this day, now that I'm almost 50 years old, I do the same thing now every single day I did with those 8 and 10 year old boys. I love people. I believe in them. I care about them. And I coach them on how to live better. And I took those same principles I was doing with the boys at the group home. And I took them into every business I've ever been in. I can honestly tell you, I've never gone into a business with the idea that the primary function of it was to make money. 
And I know it sounds odd because I've made a lot of money. I'm oceanfront here. I've got my own jet. I've got four homes. I've had every car you could ever want, hundreds of millions of dollars. And I can honestly tell you, it's not that I don't want to make money. Of course I do. But I've never started a business with that being the idea. I've always started a business. Does this help people? Can I solve a problem? Can I make people's lives better? And I know it sounds cheesy. I would have never been this way. And I'll, I'll stop after this. I was not this kind of person until I went to the group home until I met with these boys at the orphanage and it changed my life and my life became about serving other people. And guess what? If my dad's not an alcoholic, I never get this job. If my dad's not an alcoholic, I don't know how to connect with these boys when I walk in there. So the worst thing in my life, my dad's drinking as a child is what got me my job that changed my life and is what gave me the skills to connect with these boys that I would have never otherwise had it. I come from a perfect home. It's, so my test became my testimony, and that really did happen for me. Everything in our life happens for us, not to us, in hindsight. People who live greatly accept that in the moment and don't need hindsight to wait to figure that out. Everything is always happening for you and not to you. And that's how I've lived my life for about 30 years since then. So I love that message you've just shared, um, Ed. Um, and if I could just jump in on that, because I think a lot of people who maybe are struggling a bit or who want more are maybe looking at what's happened in their life like it's against them. And we've all got into that mentality at some point. And um, one of the social media posts I did recently that's had the most reach, you know, hundreds of thousands of views and comments was when I talked about when I was a really overweight kid and I felt I was bullied badly. I wasn't bullied as badly as I felt I was because half of it was in my head but it was enough and I lost all the weight and I went to a new school and I was skinny and girls recognised me and all that like they never did. But that kid who wanted to be loved and noticed and appreciated never went away. I didn't change. That was just still there. The, the, the flesh had gone, but the person is still there and I still need to prove myself to the world. I still want to help people. I still want to be liked and noticed. And if it weren't for that, we wouldn't be talking. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing either. So that is a lovely lovely message which is you know your voids become your values you know what you lack in your life drives who you are yeah and most people brother i love that it's hard to, looking at you now hard to imagine you are <laughs> yeah. overweight right you're so fit thank you the other part of it is in our lives you know if we would just begin to leverage our pain for our own benefit we'd be a lot happier mm. people think people think i want a life where i have no pain <laughs> What, what a, what a, by the way, what a boring life that would be. Yeah. It, my dad has cancer right now, and he's my best friend. He's in his mid-70s. He's like, well, how is your dad having cancer happening for you or him? How is that even possible? Well, I'll tell you. I wish he didn't have it. But the truth is, you know what? I value my time with my dad so much more than he does with me. I value my time with everybody I love more in my life. I value my time with my own children differently now. My perception of what's important and what a real problem is every single day has been altered dramatically. Like, is it really that big of a problem if someone didn't return my email? My dad's dying of cancer, yeah. right? Is it really that bad if I lost a little, little bit of money in some business venture? My dad's dying of cancer, right? And it just puts a premium, it focuses you on what really matters, which is the people that we love in our life. It's so easy in business and social media to think, I'll get back to them when I'm wealthy. I'll really engage with them once I get this other thing fixed. Once this, once that, except those days never come. Yeah. And so it's been a blessing in disguise, we've all heard that term before, that this has happened to our family. And I'm, I'm not grateful that it happened, but I am using this experience to happen for me and not to me, just like you did the bullying. So congratulations. Amen to you. The difference of our life is, brother, is not the events of our life. What defines us is the meaning we take away from the event. Yeah. So there's this great analogy of, you know, you and I might see someone pass away. Take the most extreme thing. We witness a car accident and someone passes away in our arms. You and I, would, our meaning would more than likely be, what a tragedy. Mother Teresa said those were the greatest blessings of her life, was to be with somebody and, and, and help them leave this place and go to heaven. Her whole meaning of the exact same event was different. And so the quality of our life is the quality of the emotions we experience on a regular basis, and the emotions come from meaning. 
So if you can begin to just be intentional out there about the meaning you're taking from events, that creates different emotions, which creates a totally different life. So if you're going to begin to change your life, yes, you need to change your identity. Yes, you need to change your self-confidence. But you know what? You need to change the meaning you're taking from events. And if you could actually accept that things are happening for you and not to you, that meaning will create different emotions in a different life. Yeah, thank you, Ed. And um, you're a great reminder um, that there are a few things in life that really are a problem. And there's everything else that's a first world problem. And we have this saying in England, first world problem, i.e. champagne problem. Ah, oh, my private jet won't start. Ah, oh, you know, my, I've got a Lamborghini Aventador and trying to get me reinsured on it this year because I've got a few points is really hard and it's a pain in the ass, and I want to sell the thing. It's a £300,000 car and I'm moaning about the insurance. It's like first world problem. Yeah, or a small thing like you're sitting in traffic and you're someone's slow in traffic behind you, you're getting all worked up into thinking, yeah. do you know how many people in the world would love to have a car? Yeah. Would love to live where there's a paved road? Yeah. Would love to know that when they get where they're going, there'd be food there or maybe clean water for their ch children? And so almost all problems are first world problems. Almost yeah. all of them. Mm. So you said earlier um, that you believe in you. I'd like to ask you, who in your life has believed in you that's really helped you? Um, so many people, brother. Um, I, I, if I'm going to be completely candid with you, the person who I know loves me and believes in me all the time, and I'm not here to preach, I, I, I love all people of all faiths, and I love people who don't have faith. But in my own situation, for me, God's always got my back. God loves me even more than I love my own children, which is hard to even conceive of. That gives me in my life great strength, tremendous comfort. And if you really want to know the truth of how all this stuff's been created, it's a blessing because I'm not this good. So that's been the first believer. I have a family who believes in me, but I have pur purposely, intentionally sought friends out whom I respected and admired, whose belief I've earned. So I'm fortunate, you know, I, I, many people know this, but you know, when I was a young man, um, Phil Knight, founder of Nike's become a dear friend. Sylvester Stallone's a good friend. These are the people by name. I say the name people, but there's many people you wouldn't know by name. But Jerry West, who's a, used to run the Lakers and is with the Warriors now, um, uh, dear, dear friends of mine that have become successful people, uh, in their own right, have believed in me, and I sought them out. I tried to meet them. I tried to get them to believe in me, just like you could do on social media by joining coaching groups or listening to podcasts like this one. This is like someone who listens to your show or my show. They're not our direct friends, but they're closer to us than a stranger. Their proximity is greater. People that listen to my program or my social media, they'll hear from me every single day. Every single day. Ten years ago, my best friends didn't hear from me for weeks on end. Now millions of people can hear from me every day. So yeah. technology has allowed us to get proximity to people who can influence us. It's the first time in, mankind, in the history of mankind that this is true. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I've had lots of people, but those would be a few just right at the top of my head. Okay, thank you. So I want to change the theme slightly uh, of the interview, though. I feel, I'm feeling it's more of a discussion, which I like. You look like you've got multiple streams of income. I am a big believer in multiple streams of income. I think if you rely on one source of income, you risk regulation, you risk competition outsmarting you, you risk a recession. What are you going to do? You've got a, you know, a company with over 40,000 employees. You've got, of course, your speaking engagements, which I'm sure you make good money from. Your social media, I'm sure there's lots of advertising you pull in from all that. Do you, do you believe in multiple streams of income? Is that something intentional or is it just all organically grown as you've grown? Uh, I would say that it became intentional after I read the book many, many years ago called Multiple Streams of Income. Yeah. I, uh, I'm a big believer in that as well. The only thing I would say to that is that I think some people that are struggling take that to an extreme. Yeah. And I, for example, today I released a podcast with a very well-known comedian named Sebastian Maniscalco. Any of you guys that have Netflix over there, you've seen his specials. And he basically said, look, I had one obsession, which is to be a stand-up comedian. And all my energy, all my focus went towards that dream. What I have found, if you didn't say success leaves clues, all of my wealthy friends have multiple streams of income. I'm invested in probably 20 different startups right now. But I got 
healthy by being great at one thing. My obsessions become my possessions. And I think to some extent, sometimes people are a jack of all trades and master of none. And so I, I think your long-term outcome is to have many streams of income, but that must be generated by one initially. And most people get to this point where they're like, I want to have 11 streams of income. You don't have one, man. You need one. You got to generate an income now at something you're great at so you can create multiple streams. That's not to say you can't be involved in two or three things at once. That's not what I'm suggesting. What I am saying is you better be great at something. You better find something and get great at it and monetize it. Because all wealthy people, well, not all, some inherit it, but the majority of wealthy people, they're great at something and they monetized it. Yeah. And that created multiple streams of income. Sean White was just on my show, the Olympic snowboarder. Yeah. He also does um, skateboarding and advertising and Oakley and all these other things. But you know how he became Sean White? Snowboarding. Freaking snowboarding. You know Michael Phelps became famous? Swimming. Were there multiple events? Yes, but swimming. You know Oprah Winfrey became famous? Her talk show. Yeah. And now she's got a magazine. And now she's got these other things. Now she produces. Now she acts. I got wealthy in the financial services business. Now I got 25 different businesses. So you better get great at something. That would be my recommendation. Okay, thank you, Ed. So those of you that are watching live on my page, um, we're going to end this now. You can catch the rest of the show on my podcast, The Disruptive Entrepreneur. So thanks for tuning in. Um, so Ed, the financial services business, in that, that sounded like that was your main thing that got you going. Can you talk us a bit about how you built that? I did. I, I built that. It's a recruiting model. And so the key to that business was getting great people working with me. Um, so I had a large, I built a client base over time. But the key for me was to learn how to persuade people. At the end of the day, the skill of being able to persuade people is priceless because I can take that skill and use it everywhere. You're using it and we're using it with each other right now. So you can persuade people with the written word spoken word, video, audio, in person, big stages, one-on-one, -on -one, boardrooms, but you have to be persuasive. And persuasion, I'll give people one tip that I learned very young that I always am conscious of. Most of you are in sales that listen to this. You may not know it, but you're in sales. This podcast, to some extent, is sales. We're sell you're selling people that my show is one you should listen to. That's a sale, right? You have to influence them. If you don't do that, you don't have a podcast. So businesses don't exist without somebody having the ability to influence other people. Influence is a transfer of energy. So it's making people feel something, right? That, they, that you want them to feel that would benefit them. But here's the mistake most salespeople make. And it's going to sound crazy, but here's what it is. You're trying to convince people to believe what you're saying. That's your mistake. You're trying to convince people to believe what you're saying. Everyone right now is going, what are, of course that's what I'm trying to do. No. That's not what influence is. Influence is not that people believe what you're saying. Believe it or not. You know what influence is? People believe you believe what you're saying. And that's a subtle distinction. If you're constantly trying to get people to believe what you're saying, you come across like a beggar. You come across desperate. Your energy is weak. But when people believe you believe what you're saying, you're influencing them. We people buy I things all the time they don't understand and don't even necessarily believe in. I have a 68 Chevelle parked in my garage right now. It's a classic car. Evidently, it's a badass car. <laughs> but I don't know anything about it. If you ask me right now, I just got asked at a gas station three days ago because guys love this car, right? They're like, hey, what is that? I'm like, I know that it's a 68 Chevelle. I'm smart enough to say that. They go, what do you got under the hood? You know what I usually say? Man, you need to take a look. <laughs> no idea what I got under the hood. I don't know what kind of an engine it is. I don't know if it has a carburetor. I don't know if it's fuel injected. I don't know shit about cars. <laughs> I bought that freaking car because everyone told me how cool it was, but I don't know anything about it. I don't even know if it's a good car or not. I know I paid $200,000 for it. I own a, uh, I don't know, a $15 million jet. You think I know whether my jet's better than Grant Cardone's jet or anybody else's jet? I have no idea. I know the guy who sold it to me believes that. I don't know anything about jets. I don't know. People buy things all the time because the people that were selling it to them believed in it. People need to believe you believe it. They don't have to necessarily believe everything you're saying. Yeah. And that's why I'm a good communicator. I'm not trying to get people to believe what I'm saying. I'm trying to get people to believe I believe what I'm saying. Yeah. 
And is there, other than believing in yourself, is there a way for you to come across, with volition of course, more like you believe in you that you're saying? Yes, in every conversation, the more certain person influences the less persons, less certain person. My wife proves this. I've, met, I've known my wife now, I'm 48 years old. I've known my wife 43 years. So we've been together a long time. I have yet to win an argument. <laughs> Even though I've probably been right about 77% of the time. But the reason she wins the arguments is she's more certain she's right than I am. And she eventually wears me out on it. So the more certain person always influences the less certain person. So what I'm conscious of all the time is my certainty level about what I believe in. Yeah. Either what my product or company can do for them, the difference in their life, the difference for their family. I'm a huge certainty freak. Like I, I in, in our country, uh, you know, we have these presidential elections every four years. There's two things almost every winner has ever had in our country, more certainty and more energy. The candidate with more certainty and more energy always beats the one with less certainty and less energy every time. You could go all the way back to, you know, Barack Obama against uh, Mitt Romney. He was more certain and had more energy. Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, no matter what you feel about politics, he was more certain and had more energy. It's just a fact. And I know this is not your country's politics, but I was just at an event with Tony Blair. And then he spoke at and our politics probably aren't the same, but I was so impressed with him. And I know I'm probably losing half the audience in the UK, but I was impressed with his ability to transfer energy, number one. Yeah. And I was, I was uh, super impressed with his certainty level. We talked about Brexit and some other things. And I don't know that I agreed with him about Brexit, but I definitely believed he believed what he believed about Brexit. And that had some influence over me. And so those are the things I'm most conscious of when I'm trying to influence. Great. Thank you. That's really useful. I made loads of notes, by the way, if you can hear me scribbling. Um, so I want to change tack again. And I've never asked anyone this question on a podcast and I've done over 400 episodes. I'm fascinated for the answer. So you're a man of faith. And at what point is it right to believe in your faith? And at what point is it right to believe in yourself? And if I could give the question some context, how do you know when to let go to have faith that someone's there is helping you and whether you believe it's God or, you know, the universe or whatever, let's leave that there. And then when, you, when do you have to believe that you're going to master your destiny and go and make things happen? How do you know when, which one? What a beautiful question, man. And uh, never been asked it before. And it's something I should be asking more of my guests. I always believe in myself. There's this thing in faith that I don't like, which is, oh, don't, don't make it too much about you because then you've moved God out. That's sort of the genesis of that question. It's like, wait a minute, if you're a big believer in you, then you don't believe in God. They're, they're not connected in any way whatsoever. I can have total belief in myself and still believe that I'm made in the image and likeness of this great God. In fact, my great belief in myself is that I come from him. In my faith, I'm like his son. Your faith could be that you plug into the energy of the universe, which, by the way, I'm also a huge believer in. I meditate. I know there's energy. I believe in the quantum field. I'm huge on it. Dr. Joe Dispenza has been on my show multiple times. I think you can believe that there's a creator and still believe there's an energy in a universe without getting too deep. In the Bible, though, there's a great parable that I think explains this, and I'm not preaching the Bible. I never talk about this on shows. But there's a parable I enjoy called the parable of the sower. And basically what the parable of the sower is, is that you plant, you plant seeds in your life. You, you're responsible to plant the seeds. And the parable goes, essentially, I'll mess it up because I mess this stuff up all the time. But the wind is going to get some of your seeds. The rain's going to get some. The birds are going to keep a bunch. But if you keep planting seeds, eventually God provides a harvest. And so you're partners in creating the harvest in your life. Without my work of planting the seeds and my belief that I know how to plant those seeds correctly, there's no harvest. I'm just not deluded into believing that there isn't some blessing and good fortune in my life that comes from beyond me. That doesn't mean it's not in my control. It doesn't mean that. What it means is, is that we're partners. I've got to put in the work and he's got to provide the blessing. If you're a believer in the energy fields, you've got to put in the work and you've got to plug into this higher consciousness. Whatever it is that you believe, but I'm a constant believer in my, I, that's not even true. 
I want to constantly believe in myself, and I believe there should never be a situation where I don't, but the failings in my life have always come when either A, I didn't believe in myself, or B, I started to get too full of myself with my ego and not give credit to God in my own life. That's when I've taken falls in my life. When I get a little bit full of me, I'm incredible. That's different. That's ego. I just did a podcast on it. Ego is completely different than belief. Actually, not to get too deep because it's too long of an answer. Ego is actually rooted in insecurity. Ego rears its head when you're not confident, even though it seems as if you are, but boasting, gossiping, taking credit for things constantly is an insecurity. The most, most secure, confident people have a lack of ego. And when I'm the most secure and I'm the most confident, I have less ego. I have less insecurity. And I just want to illustrate this really quickly. We say, well, no, but my friends are the biggest ego. They're achieving and they're bragging about their jet or their this or their that. The reason they're bragging, the reason their ego rears its head, just so you know, because I've been there, they're afraid they're going to lose it. They're afraid it's going away. There's a part of them that's like, I don't deserve this. I didn't earn this. I'm not this good. And so they go out of their way to talk themselves into it. And that's why God's important for me because it humbles me. Okay, so a few more questions. This is spurred on, Ed. Um, how does one become more secure? Because I completely agree with you about ego, by the way, 100%. Um, I think it's fear, insecurity, doubt. Um, I know in my life, my moments of power have been when I've shut my mouth when previously I would have had to open it to defend, to justify, to etc. Um, and sometimes I used to think, well, not defending and, um, you know, putting my side across or persuading was a weakness. I now know it's a strength to be able to sit there and say nothing and listen to people and not have to aggrandise yourself. And that's something I've worked on. So how, how does one become more secure? Great question. I'm going to give you my path recently, and it's incredible that you just said it. I don't know how much you listen to my content, but two weeks ago, I talked about this as one of my weaknesses. I really like you, brother. I hope we do something together. Thank you. Um, mine is, my security is um, rooted in uh, that I'm enough and that I'm not what I look like. I'm not my possessions. I'm not my achievements. I'm enough the way I am particularly for women in our culture today, this is so difficult to accept because they're constantly being messaged they're not enough. Men are too, but women, it's, they don't look the right way. They better not be too bold, too ambitious, too strong, or too weak, too beautiful, too not so beautiful, right? Too curvy, not too curvy. Too skinny, not too skinny, right? And so they're constantly being messaged they're not enough. I, I have a real acceptance of myself, and I want to tell you one of the things I do that helps me and you just said it. it's amazing you just said this all my life I've struggled which is listening to people and I find that my certainty about myself this is going to sound ironic but I think it'll help people if you just process this is being present where I am in the moment constant presence meaning when I'm with you I'm not thinking about what's on my phone right now I'm not even thinking about what I need to say when you're finished speaking I'm just experiencing you. So the irony is the security about myself is when I get out of myself and just be present with people or present in space, present in the universe. I know it sounds really goofy, but the more I'm always worried about what I'm going to say, what I'm going to think, what other people are going to think, what I'm going to achieve, what I haven't achieved, all of these external things are constantly creating insecurity for me. And it's like this hole I can't fill. And all achievers understand this whole. Most achievers believe this. I teach something called blissful dissatisfaction. Here's what most achievers believe. I need to delay my happiness until. Once I get the relationship, then I'll let myself be happy. Once I make a million dollars, then I'll be happy. Once I get the car or the jet or the body or the relationship, then I'll be happy. Because they think if I enjoy my life right now, I'm going to lose my drive. And that's their flawed thinking. They, they, their achievement model is don't enjoy it. Don't love myself. Don't really believe in myself. If I constantly kind of hate myself, don't like myself, hold back my joy and bliss, I'll get more of this stuff. And once I get there, then I'll give myself the gift of loving myself. Okay? The problem is the following. Number one, you always have to bring you with you. 
no matter where you go. So when you're riding on your private jet, if you don't like you in your apartment right now, let me give you the truth. You're not going to like you on your jet. And it's flawed thinking. If you ever bitten into, if you're not a vegetarian, you ever bitten into a great steak, that first bite is bliss. Oh, you enjoy it so much. It doesn't make you think, I don't want another bite. You lose your drive or hunger. The reverse is true. That blissful bite feeds your hunger. This is true in our lives as well. If we would allow ourselves to be blissful and celebrate the moments we have now, a dopamine hits in our brain and tells us, let's go do that again. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. So one of the keys of achieving at the highest level is to enjoy the victories now. Enjoy you now. Enjoy the moment now. These are actually catalysts to achieve more. I know this because I'm 48 years old. I work harder than I've ever worked in my life. And one of the reasons is I love it so much because I stopped cheating myself at about 30 out of the enjoyment. I went 10 years of winning, making money, having experiences and enjoying none of them because I was never present. When I was on vacation, I was thinking about work. When I was winning that award, I was already on to the next thing. I never stopped and was present with people, with myself. And so the way you become more confident, the way you become more sure of yourself is to be present with yourself, to be present with other people, to enjoy now. I have a friend, last thing, three weeks ago, he's 59 years old. I'm a lot older than your eye. <laughs> sent out an email on a Friday thanking everybody who had helped him become wealthy. He had just sold his business. And he said, I, I'm, I want to thank each of you. I think I've reached everyone who's helped me. It was a long email, a lot of people on it. And now I'm going to go enjoy my life. He passed away on Monday. Wow. I got the email on Friday evening. He died Monday morning. By the way, most heart attacks happen on Monday mornings, ironically, too. Fatal ones. And the reason that he delayed his entire happiness until that moment, and he got two days. He should have enjoyed it the whole time. Yeah. And I tell him this for years. Brother, enjoy it now. Enjoy it now. And he didn't. And he got two days of happiness in his life. And so that's my message is enjoy your life now. You're not going to lose your drive. I promise you, you won't lose your hunger. Yeah. It'll increase. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so I, I feel like I'm always trying to figure out life. And when, I'm try when I think I'm getting closer, then I realize how far I am away. Um, and I have this mentor, and uh, I don't know if you know him, Ed, and if you don't, you should definitely connect with him. He's a, a real genius. His name's John, Dr. John DeMartini. Um, and he's been a mentor of mine for a long time. And he's a polymath and very wise chap. And he's taught me a lot about the paradoxes of life. And I think often in life, especially if you look at social media and general media, it's like great or awful. We're looking for sound bites. We're looking for the only way to win is the one top success tip is. And I don't think any of that's real, any of that's real life. And what you just talked about was a paradox between the hunger for more and enjoying the now. And about 10 minutes ago, as you were talking, I wrote persistence versus patience. We've got here your faith in God versus your faith in yourself. Um, getting people to believe in you, but also getting them to believe that you believe in you. Um, you know, like make loads of money, but be grounded. Um, have multiple streams of income, but focus on one main one first. Everything we're talking about is a paradox between... Things we're trying to separate to make sense of when in reality, they're whole and, and they're inseparable. So do you have any thoughts on that? It's a bit random. First off, my first thought is that your IQ is very high. Um, and that's... I've never done a test. I wouldn't know. I'm in the personal development space, the whatever you want to call it, peak performance. And some of the insights you have um, are very rare to have. And frankly, at your age as well, what I think your age is. Um, and uh, what I would respond to that is that I think the most happy and successful people spend most of their time in the nuance of life. That's the paradox. In other words, you're, it is true that you need multiple streams of income. There's a nuance to everything that's said. And I think oftentimes, because we do get these things in sound bites, the reason that people struggle to become happy and achieve is everything is in the literal translation because everything has to be said in one minute or less. Even on the show, your show, my show, I'm hurrying up to make points that I probably would love to elaborate on for 25 or 30 minutes. And I'm probably already one of your more long-winded guests, right? So 
It's the nuances of life. It's the, it's the balances of life. My children, I want to love them and make sure they know I believe in them and encourage them. At the same time, I have to correct them and discipline them, which hurts them when I do it, right? So that's the nuance of it. But the truth is, if I've flooded my children with enough belief, enough love, that they understand the discipline is to get them better because I want them to live up to that standard I believe they're capable of. That's the nuance. But you may not hear that part when you listen to someone with raising children. They go, never spank your children or never discipline your children. Never say a crossword. Don't tell your children no. That's one camp. The other one is, you know, raise them with a, you know, a stern uh, well, belt around them so that they they understand boundaries when they're young. Everything's in the nuance. So you're exactly right. A hundred percent right about that. Yeah, like you were saying, never. I think maybe two words that we should always question are never and always. Because how can anything be never or how can anything be always? It's all context dependent. I make that mistake less than I used to, but I'm so in agreement with you that I do notice it when other people do it. Yeah, I, I know that really never, you never raise your voice. You never lie, like never. <laughs> Pretty impressive, right? Or I always have believed, really, every single second of your life, you've always believed. And I make that mistake too, because to emphasize a point, we'll put an exaggerated statement on it. Because the truth is, in any area, you only have such a short window of time and you want them to grasp the point. And so we do use these words the people who are very coachable sometimes can take to extremes, which is why listening to someone's podcast for one show is helpful. But if you listen to a hundred of the same person, you begin to hear the nuances. Mm-hmm. They're not contradictions. They're nuances. Yeah. And so uh, I, I, there's syntax to life. There's context to life. There's seasons to life. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I'm such a an advocate for pick a few podcasts or people you follow and stay with them because also the last thing is humans are flawed if you listen to my show you listen to a hundred of them i probably said something in one of those shows i don't even believe anymore yeah because i've grown i've had a new insight but the most important part is does someone have content that helps you that serves you like this mentor of yours who i'd love you to email me his name again because i will yeah i would love that and, and, and then at the same time, also, is this person have enough humility to be vulnerable with you about their own weaknesses and insecurities? I don't like super women or super men mentors, that they're perfect all the time. I'm real skeptical of them because I just, they're a human being. And so I know they're not perfect all the time. I know they're not blissful all the time. And it's those vulnerabilities and weaknesses that make me root for somebody and want to follow them. Mm. So one more paradox question, and then we'll um, move into the quick fire, if that's okay. Uh, so final paradox we'll talk about is money and wealth. So I wrote a book here, um, which has done a lot better in the UK and America, just because I have a lot more followers over here, called Money. Um, and I believe wealth and money is one of the biggest exaggerated paradoxes we live in. And I hear so many people disassociate money and happiness, i.e., Money is the root of all evil. And, you know, like material, you know, the, the love of material items, you know, that, that, that is not how you want to live. You want to live a minimal life, which, by the way, I don't agree with because I have a 1987 Ferrari Testarossa, which was my pinup car my whole life. And when I bought that for cash, uh, I bought it well as well. I mean, I'll just, I don't need to drive that. I just get it in my dressing gown in the garage and I just sit in it and I love it. <laughs> and there was an Italian designer with his passion and love that designed that beautiful machine. And his mortgage was paid by the people who buy the cars. And his family had food on the table by the people who buy the cars. And, you know, people aren't taking from the poor and giving to the rich. They're buying art and beauty and creativity, the human expression in a car. And of course, that could be said for any Patek Philippe or, you know, a piece of art or, you know, a really expensive camera. So I believe that the spiritual and the material cannot be separated. I believe that, I think there's a saying that um, matter without spirit is um, expressionless and spirit without matter is motionless. And um, so what's your view on wealth and the happiness and the trappings and the material items? Do you think that, you know, there's a big movement on minimalism and, you, you know, like 
that material and wealth is bad. I mean, I, you know, I did a lot of research on you and I've listened to some of your content, Ed, and, you know, on your website, you've got the, the yacht and the private jet and the Ferrari. I had, um, I, I crashed that same Ferrari and had a £105,000 repair bill. Um, so... I, uh, I agree with, I think you and I are pretty close. I just did an interview not too long ago where Grant Cardone and I were interviewed together. He's a dear friend of mine. We have an honest disagreement about this. Now, so his contention in the interview is you can't be happy if you don't have money, which I think is bullshit. I know plenty of people that are happy that don't have money. Yeah. Um, I have pastor friends, school teacher friends, nurse friends that don't have money that are very happy people. Mm-hmm. So that part I know is not true. He's wrong about that. And I would, I've said that to his face. And you can go watch the interview. He's just wrong. Yeah. Um, maybe he can't be happy without money, mm. which is fine. But to tell that is a, is a that's like one of those paradoxes again. Yeah, yeah. Nuances. And so I know for sure that you can be happy without money. Now, having said that, I line up more where you line up. Um, I'll tell you right now, money's made me happy. So I live in the ocean right here. I've lived in a track house. I've lived in an apartment. And um, I've been poor and rich. I've been happy, poor, happy, rich. Happy, rich is a thousand times better than happy, poor. <laughs> Yeah. Right? It's a thousand times better. When this interview, when we started the interview, I had the ocean in the background, but it was, it was hurting our view. But do you think that I don't go look at that ocean? Does not make me happy? You don't think almost every morning I pinch myself and go, oh my gosh, look where we are. I dream, I walked this very beach as a child with my wife as teenagers and said, babe, I'm going to get you that house on that beach someday. And we live there now. You don't think that creates happiness? Of course it does. When I get on my jet, I'm happy. Uh, when I bought a new suit or ladies, you got a new outfit or shoes. It, of course it makes you happy. It's ridiculous to say it doesn't make you happy. Having said that, it won't fulfill you. There's a difference between happiness and fulfillment. Material things can absolutely make you happy. Of course they can. They won't fulfill you. They don't do that thing to your soul that makes you feel home, that makes you feel centered, that makes you feel peaceful. That's always going to be in the service of other people. That will endure. That will last forever. And so I think people conflate happiness and fulfillment. My jet does not fulfill me. Promise you. This ocean view does not fulfill me. It makes me happy. And I want lots of happiness in my life. But the end game of my life is fulfillment. Fulfillment comes in the service of other people. Fulfillment comes from using gifts that you know to be blessings of yours and to use them every day in your life. Clearly, you doing this doesn't just make you happy. It's better than the Ferrari. It fulfills you because it's part of your calling. It's obvious listening to you, the way you think, the way you articulate, your desire to learn more and explore more about life and humanity and spirituality and attraction and all these things. You're just like me. This fulfills us. We're in our go zone here. We're where we were born to be for now. And so that's fulfillment. And so I chase happiness all the time, but I, I want my end game to be fulfillment and I do make a distinction between those two. I think that's a brilliant distinction, Ed, and I think that's maybe where there's a lot of confusion. And funny what you said about Grant, because I know Grant quite, quite well. He's coming at speaking at one of our events next month. Can't, that's another one of those. Can't is like never and always. Um, yeah, so I like that distinction. And I okay, love him, so, a brother of mine. We just disagree about that one thing. Which, which we're allowed to do. It's not a bad thing. Um, okay, so this is the quick fire round now, Ed. So we've probably got a few minutes left. I want to thank you so much for giving us your time. Really grateful. Um, so, by the way, a couple of these questions, I don't think they are that good, but the answers often are, so bear with me. Um, what's the best advice you ever received? Uh, you said quick. Best advice I ever received um, was from my dad. And my, my dad told me to, uh, wow, I get emotional on this because he just did it with me in a difficult thing. My dad told me to tell the truth even when it's difficult. And he's probably told me that probably 30, 40,000 times in my life. And so I've built this kind of muscle of being willing to be candid when it makes me look bad. And when it might even cost me a friendship um, or when I may lose something short term really significantly. doesn't mean I don't lie. I lie. Mm. Humans lie. But 
when it's difficult and it gets real crunch time, I'm pretty good at telling the truth in those moments. Maybe I'm not good at doing it in every day. <laughs> I'm good in those moments. That's probably the best advice I've ever received. Love it. What about the worst advice you ever received? The worst advice I ever received was from my dad, <laughs> which was to quit the business that I started that I told you made me wealthy. Yeah. He tried to talk me out of it. He tried to get me a real job. He had even lined up some interviews with some people he knew and tried to get me out of that. Thank God I did not take that advice. Mm. Um, what one thing in the world you really feel is wrong that you'd like to change? I, I, in the world today, I get emotional about it almost every day now. I, I don't like how mean we are to each other and how divided we are as humans. I think the media does it. I think both political parties in my country do it and yours. It's the division amongst humans that uh, the lack of kindness for one another, the lack of appreciation for one another hurts me at a deep, I get emotional, it hurts me at a deep level to see how divided the world is from sexual preferences to religions to countries and races and genders and political beliefs. I, I, I hate how mean we are to each other as humans right now. And I'd love to see that change. I try to be somewhat of a catalyst and a little way to help that happen. You're the second person in a row that said that and I completely agree with you. Um, so this podcast, the main theme of it is disruptive. Uh, what does the word disruptive mean to you, Ed? Disruptive to me is actually going to sound ironic. Disruptive to me is to live truth to yourself. And so to do what is true to you, what your heart tells you to do and drown out the noise, uh, the opposite of um, courage is not like cowardice. It's conformity. Everybody in the world today is conforming to what other people think they should be or what they should be doing. So a disruptive human is like you and me. I'm doing my thing. And I, I have to get to a point in your life, you have to get rather at a point in your life where you're willing to take the heat for being you for chasing your real dream, for going after it when nobody believes it, nobody thinks it's possible, there's no evidence you should do it, you have a track record of failing already at it, but there's this part of you inside that's like, man, I'm going to go for it, I'm going to stay excited until the job gets done. That's a disruptive person who's willing to be true to themselves. It's the person who's got cancer who keeps freaking fighting when the doctor says, you got three months. You're a disruptive motherfucker when you keep <laughs> fighting during those times. You're an entrepreneur and nothing's going right. Everyone thinks you're out of your mind. You know what's disruptive? To stay true to your voice, to stay true to your calling, to get after it. So I love disruptive people because disruptive people have one thing other people. They won't conform and they will take the damn heat. Most people hate the heat. They hate the rejection. They hate the pain. They hate being ostracized. They hate the negativity. They hate the struggle. They can't deal with it, so they won't disrupt. They conform. And so for me, it's lack of conformity. It's being you. Uh, there's a quote I want to pull out, Ed. That This is definitely you, and I love it. Take the heat for being you. I love that quote. That's great. So this is the end of the show, Ed. Um, where can we follow you? Uh, what work have you got going on at the moment that you'd like us to check out? Um, I'll tell you what, uh, Instagram, at Ed Milet, E-D-M-Y-L-E-T-T. -E From there, you can get access to my YouTube channel and my podcast, which is the top five in the United States. I have a coaching program that you can learn about through there too. But for your audience, just because I want them to have it, it's a pain in the neck for me to do this because it's abroad. But I have a book called Max Out. It's 100 pages. You can read it in a day. I want your audience to have it for free, and there's no upsell here. So when I say free, you're not going to get into a click funnel, and I'm going to sell you some program. There's nothing like that. So if your audience goes to maxoutbook.com, and they use the code maxout, the book's free. you got to pay to ship it. There's no upsell after that. It's just a free book, and I think it'll help you with all kinds of aspects of, of life. So maxoutbook.com, code maxout, and add my lead on Instagram. Ed, it's been a real pleasure. You've juiced me up. It's normally my bedtime now, and I want to go and do like 10 hours of work and a workout and everything. Brother, I'm honored, and I enjoyed this today. And I'm telling you, you found me on a difficult day, and I'm glad we did it. And I'd like you uh, offline to get an email. Get me your contact info. You and I are going to do something together. I will do. And one more thing, if I could just say that, Ed. Um, a lot of people define professionalism in many ways. 
I believe professionalism is doing what you've committed to do and you know you should do, even when life is hard and things are difficult. And the fact that you've done that today, that's a real honour because I have a lot of high profile guests who move me around left, right and centre and you never did. And that means a lot. So thank you for that as well. Blessing was mine today, brother. Thanks so much. Cheers, Ed. Have a good day. Thank you.